0: Now it's eight o'clock. My timekeeper, ladies and gentlemen, we gotta get it. Okay. Uh, this is called How to Write a Graphic Novel in Under an Hour, and uh, believe it or not, we're gonna do that very thing. We're actually gonna write a graphic novel in under an hour together as a group, and amazingly enough, it's gonna be a pretty good graphic novel. It's not gonna be that bad. We're not gonna write the dialogue and draw it because that would take forever. But the idea is there's an astounding amount of information about to impart and go into your brain, so try to keep the information in there, hold your head together when it's all done. Take notes if you want to. We're going to start off with this idea that most people don't understand. It's the single most important idea that you're going to, of all the things I'm going to say today, this is the one that's going to matter the most. No one wants to read your graphic novel. That is an astounding piece of information that most people don't understand. Because when people sit down to write their first graphic novel, they sit down and go, I'm going to tell this, 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 this element of the story, and I don't care who likes it, I do. And the problem is, we don't want to read your graphic novel because we don't have time. We have the internet that is going to bring us gambling and pornography and and video games, and if we leave our house, there's a car accident I can look at that's pretty entertaining. And there are so many things trying to get my attention that the problem is when somebody sits down to read a graphic novel, the choices they have include your graphic novel and mine and Stephen King's and Brian Bendis's, and people who are much more famous than you. So the problem becomes when you sit down to create your graphic novel, your first brilliant idea, you have to get over the idea that what you want is what the public wants because the public doesn't want it. So like anyone else that is building something that they're going to try to sell to people or they're going to try to get, you know, some kind of an investment from someone, even if they don't have to buy it, they have to spend the time to read it, you have to have an understanding of what it is that people want out of a graphic novel and how to get them to buy into your idea. Now, first off, who the hell am I? Ty yeah, I know that part, but I'm saying, have I ever written graphic novels? Yes, I've written about six or seven of them. If anyone here is because of Star Trek, I've written a Star Trek graphic novel that I think was IDW's best-selling Star Trek graphic novel that didn't tie into a movie. I have to add that to it, because their movie tie-ins do pretty good. Yeah? Written and
1: illustrated.
0: That's true. You're right. But the writing part is already dealing with today. And I've, I've written and illustrated a graphic novel for uh, Vertigo called Big Time, and I've uh, I co-wrote a graphic novel uh, with Dan Slott called uh, Spider-Man and the Human Torch, I'm with Stupid. So I have a bit of a track record with graphic novels, so I do have some idea what I'm talking about. So let's start off with the first idea. The first idea is this. If we want to convince people to read our graphic novel, we have to come up with a reason why people read in the first place. And the reason people read is because, I was, normally when I do this for the classroom, I teach do this, I, I make it call-a-response and ask you guys questions, but today, we only have an hour to learn everything, so I'm going to have to just tell you all the answers. It's not going to be any fun. But here's the reason why people go to reading, to fiction as, a, as an escape, because the things I said to you at the beginning of all this, that we could go and find a sporting event to watch, or listen to music, or go watch that car accident, we have all the tax on the road, and we really enjoy watching the cars crash, there is a limited amount of what we can get out of that. When we go to a sporting event, we get excitement because things are happening, but we don't get a lot of information, and the only two emotions at a sporting event are, err, and yay! That's, that's it. That's all you get. <laughs> and if you listen to music, there's tons of emotions you get in music, but you don't learn a lot informationally. You couldn't probably tell me the annual rainfall of Ecuador after listening to a song, unless it it's a song about the annual rainfall of Ecuador, who the hell would listen to that? So, when we come to fiction. It is because it gives us an opportunity to ingest three things that we as human beings really like. Number one, we get information from fiction. We learn things about the world. Insight, ideas about what it's like to be someone else, what it's like to live another life. We get to do that in safety of fiction. Number yeah. two, we get to watch things happen. If really yeah. good, it's going to have all the punching and fighting and car accidents that we were hoping for from the real world, but we're doing it in safety. And number three, we get to feel emotions about something. We get to feel an emotion. If your fiction doesn't make you cry or laugh or want to go kill someone, it's pretty lame fiction. If it's just about how to make beautiful caramel apples, you know, and my mom at one point made a nice dress, I'm not going to feel very emotional about that. So when we're creating fiction, we really want to inform the audience about what it's like to live a different life. We want to show them stuff happening that's going to make them excited. And we want to bring them to some kind of an emotional boil in some way, or our fiction's going to fail. And I tend to try to keep this as a fairly simple compartmentalized triangle of saying information, action, and emotion. And when we are writing the world of fiction, that triangle of information, action, and emotion is what we are constantly cycling through. And if you think about information, action, and emotion, it ties into what a guy named Jim Shooter. Is anybody know who Jim Shooter was? Oh my God, really? He used to be editor-in-chief of Marvel Comics. There you go. The whole room should have put their hands up. Fame is fleeting. He was the editor-in-chief of Marvel Comics in the the 80s. And uh, he taught me once that the unified field theory of writing is that all stories, every piece of fiction ever written for Western culture, follows that information-action-emotion triangle by doing this. All stories are done in this way. First thing you tell your audience is what is normal for the characters and the situations we're dealing with. That's information. You follow that with something changes what is normal for these characters. We introduce a new character, we introduce a new situation, we introduce something new that changes the fundamental normal. And then we emotionally find out what results from the change. What's normal, what changes it, what becomes the new normal, and what is the emotional reaction that characters have from that. you give me my five minutes? Is that five minutes? I really need these five minutes. Is that five minutes? About six. It's about five minutes. Beautiful. Okay. So... Once we understand that to get people to pay attention to our graphic novel, we have to come up with an idea of a normal and a change for that normal that's going to intrigue the audience. It's going to have them go, oh, I've got to read that. Because it's not just a story about, I know this guy named Bob, and one day he lost his hat. That's not going to intrigue you very much, because we don't really care that Bob's normal includes him having a hat, and I'm not sure that there's an awful lot of emotions involved in Bob losing his hat, unless it's like a Pope hat, then it's not really going to matter to him. So what we have to do off the beginning is we have to think of a normal that's intriguing. We have to start off with what is a thing that the audience will say, I'm intrigued and invested by what is normal in this question. And there's three things that we can start off as what the normal thing is. We can even start off with a normal character, a normal situation, or a normal event. And for a normal character, which is normally where we start, we usually say a blank, blank character does blank, blank, and this is what our story's about. So how do we make this character automatically intriguing to human beings? And the way they usually tell you in script books and stuff is to say, give that character a simple three-word description that allows us to instantly figure out kind of who they are, so that we can start to assume their story before it happens. So if I said to you, a blind plastic surgeon, you'd automatically go, I know a few things that are going to happen during this story. <laughs> Probably a lawsuit and a lot of screaming." but i have already created a little bit of the story just because of that intriguing idea blind plastic surgeon. Or if I said... Uh, a, uh, um, a rock climber with OCD, so that he has to hit the peak on seven times before he can put his weight on You've already got a little bit of who that character is, so that we are, as an audience, starting to be intrigued. It helps if the character is somebody we identify with, that we recognize a little bit of ourselves in, because most audiences want to see themselves in the stories they read. It's why little girls love Alice in Wonderland and little boys love whatever the boy equivalent of it is, because that was my favorite book as a kid. I'm clearly transgender. <laughs> the, the idea that we, we look for ourselves in some way into the character. So what I like to do is, after I realize that describing characters as three-word descriptions that have strong positive, uh, no, sorry, I don't mean positive, have strong through lines, and we recognize something about them, I tend to like say that the most intriguing characters are the ones that are the most something that you can make them. So listen to this phrase and see if it makes sense to you. The blankiest blank in blank. If you know what that phrase means, you will find that the greatest characters from fiction can all be described using that term, the blankiest blank in blank. If you, if, does anybody here know the single most popular uh, book ever written for women in the English language? It's called Pride and Prejudice. I imagine an awful lot of the women in the room have read it. The main protagonist in Pride and Prejudice is Elizabeth Bennet, and she is described in the book more than once as the smartest girl in the family. That is a blankiest blank. Whenever I say blankiest blank blankiest blank, everybody always goes, the strongest man in the world! Because you know they always want to make the third thing the biggest thing ever. But it doesn't have to be. You can be the smartest girl in the family, or you can be, for instance, the most popular book written in the English language for men, The Hitchhiking Guide to the Galaxy. The main character in that, Arthur Dent, is the only man in the universe, which is a blankiest blank and blank of its own. And the Godfather is the most powerful man in the Mafia. And Superman is the strongest man in the world. Batman is the smartest, the world's greatest detective. Yep,
1: And the Hulk is the strongest one there is.
0: Right. And Wolverine is the best there is at what he does. So every single character that can be described in some way as the blankiest blank in blank is automatically intriguing to your audience. Even if I say the smelliest frog in the pond, I'm still more interested in that character than just a smelly frog. Because on some level we love things to be at their extreme. But instantly intrigued by the his smell of. His just off the top of your head, play he like. His life, but. Doesn't matter, you can't be
1: wrong.
0: The creepiest zombie in the in the graveyard? The creepiest zombie in the graveyard is a character I am far more intrigued by than just this guy who is a zombie. Because we've already got that he's the creepiest, which means the other zombies admire him jealous of him or hate him or whatever. And we've again built in this idea that the story starts to suggest itself to the readers. Because once a story suggests itself to you, you are intrigued to go get it to see if the story that's written jibes up with the one that you think in your head is happening. We all think we're better writers than the writers we're paying for. We all secretly do that. That's why everybody thinks that they can write their own story. I know better than Mario Puzo or Steve St. Screw them. So once you know... Have I got my five minutes in? Because i got to go through this one. 10. That's beautiful, that's exactly what I want. Okay, so once you know that your character is intriguing, we have to now put him or her into a situation that changes normal. Remember we said the beginning of this was we have to start off with something that's normal. Once we have a normal, here's our neurotic rock climber that we talked about before, or our our plastic surgeon with an eyesight problem. Once we know what's normal for this character, we have to come up with something that changes the normal, that makes the normal into an intriguing new thing, that we all go, wow, I want to see that normal change into that normal, because that's, again, going to suggest ideas. Now, there are five kinds of stories that are possible to write. You'll hear sometimes that people say the only six stories possible are man versus man, man versus nature, man versus this nonsense. You'll also sometimes hear, there's a fellow by the name of Christopher Bookings, who, read, who once wrote, there's only seven plots ever written, in a the actual truth is there's five kinds of stories there's six billion plots available from. And the five kinds of stories are a plot, a tale, a character study, a sketch, and a monograph. And I'll quickly tell you what each of those things are in incredibly quick versions. A plot, the normal is whatever the character is, and then the character discovers they desire something and I'm now going, are now going to make an effort to get it. That's what a plot is. A plot is always about effort to achieve. Either you want, to su- you want to survive a bear attack, or you want your father to love you after a bear attack, or you want your um, you want to find buried treasure, or you want to find love, or something. But plots are entirely about a character who discovers they desire something and makes an effort to get that. And that's what we do when we watch plots: is we watch characters try to get something and then fail. Because if they succeed on the first try, it's damn short, graphical. We need these characters to trip over things and fall down wells, and have Nazis show up and get in the way. We need these things so that the story continues on for the 108 pages instead so of 108 pages, it'll happen if you just, I'd like some treasure. Oh, there's some. That's not a fine story. So, how do we hook up the idea of the first thing, which is the character that we've defined as normal, that's intriguing to us, and then the new thing that they desire? How do we put those two things together? And the answer is, is that we have to create a desire That takes them out of normal and puts them into a new, intriguing place that we can say, "Hey, the blind plastic surgeon—if he just simply wants to, uh, you know, uh, do plastic surgery on Paris Hilton and that's his desire—well, that's that's his normal world. But what if the blind plastic surgeon is kidnapped by aliens and he has to do plastic surgery on the King of Trelawther? Well, he's now gone into a new world. That was a grand exaggeration, but at least it becomes this new world that they create. Yeah, it's kind of like fish out of water." It's got exactly like fish out of water. So that the idea, I was just trying to avoid saying that. Can I tell you why i tried to avoid saying this? A little teeny lesson on on writing. Uh, The great writer George Orwell once said, never use a simile, metaphor, or turn of a phrase you did not invent. And since you didn't invent fish out of water, you shouldn't. Uh, Which basically, that's okay. Everybody just cliches. Basically what that means is, if you want to say the knife, or the arrow went through his shoulder like a knife through butter, You've all heard that. But if you say the arrow went through his shoulder like a shark through an orphanage. <laughs> I promise you, I just made that up as we are talking, but I promise you as you go out of this room, somebody later on is going to go shark through an orphanage. Right. Pardon me? I'm quoting
1: you.
0: Right. Please do. Okay. So the way we do it is we find the blankiest blank's desire because that's what we're dealing with for a plot. The blank is blank's desire is one that we want to go with them on that journey and see how it happens. And the way we figure out whether or not this desire is going to appeal to the audience at large, I'm going to need six volunteers to make the point. So, who here would like to represent sex? <laughs> Somebody who thinks they know something
1: about sex. Guys, <laughs> can you stand up for me? LAUGHTER
0: don't worry about it. I'm not going to touch it. <laughs> sex, just to be here for a moment and you're an expert on sex. Now here's what sex is. In, in fiction sex is not just illegal journey <laughs> pouring down both. Sex is any time two people try to partner up or become emotionally close to each other. Believe it or not, there's a, there's a sexual through line in lethal weapon between Riggs and Murtaugh. That's considered sex in the world of fiction because it's about characters partnering up. So the most incredibly chaste first kiss from Archie Andrews is as much a sexual part of the story as, you know, riding dinosaurs naked and just doing whatever you want. So sex means <laughs> the concept of characters partnering up and forming relationships. Your sex. Thank you very much. You gonna stay there for a minute because we're going to have you be the expert on sex as we go through the story. Who wants to be violence? Violence. Somebody has to be violence. Nobody wants to be violence. Okay, you're violence. Please, thank. You. Violence in fiction means that characters in opposition to each other make an effort to do something to stop it, or characters. Are in danger of suffering great injury. That's what violence is. So, in other words, if Bob and Steve both want the same treasure and they're both hunting, you know, the treasure hunters and they fight each other over it, that's violence. But if a bear shows up and chases them, that's also violence. If a tsunami comes, that's also violence. So, violence is basically strong conflict or the possibility of injury. The next one we're going to deal with is suffering. Who wants to be a suffering expert? You're suffering fabulous. Suffering is the idea of characters who do not prosper, who are incredibly unhappy with the turnouts of stories. We are fascinated so far by sex violence and suffering. We need another one now. We need wickedness. Who wants to be our expert on wickedness? If you, want to be, you can be our wickedness expert. I have to go. Wickedness is the concept of knowing sin and doing it anyway. That's <laughs> wickedness and. and sin basically means to cause harm to others through your own selfishness. I don't particularly find... There are youngsters in the audience, so I'll put this as nicely as possible. Self-abuse wicked, because it hurts nobody, unless there's somebody downstairs and they don't like the thumping of your leg. It doesn't actually hurt anybody. So in general, wickedness has to do with the idea of intentionally causing others pain for your own self-interest. The next thing we need to have an expert on is um, uh, comedy. Who here knows what a good joke is? Nobody wants to be a good funny person? You're a comedy person. Up you go. Comedy is basically... Well, I think most people here understand what comedy is. But in a, in a nutshell, I want comedy to be the idea of unusual juxtapositions of things we don't expect and stuff that makes us laugh. And the last thing we're going to need from our panel of experts is novelty. And novelty is the idea of, what the hell is that? I ain't seen that before. So is there anyone here who wants to be a novelty expert? Just to stand up for this idea. Be your novelty expert. You're being pushed into it. So you're standing up for novelty. Okay. So what we have up here on the board is the six flavors of fiction. And they are sex, violence, suffering, wickedness, novelty, and comedy. I believe that's what we got in order. If you actually could order, order if it for sex, violence, suffering, wickedness, comedy, and novelty, or I'm novelty and good. comedy. Either way, it's fine. Okay. So they tell you that there's only six case buds in your mouth, that you have salt, savory, sweet, sugar, and I don't know what the other two are. And in general... Everything we taste is based on those six flavors. Ladies and gentlemen, these are the six flavors of fiction. Sex, violence, suffering, wickedness, novelty, and comedy. If your story does not instantly suggest that it will travel down these pathways, no one cares. If you look at the most successful stories of the last couple of years in films, we have stories like Avatar and Titanic and The Lord of the Rings and things of that nature. Avatar covers all six of these subjects beautifully. Uh, the Titanic is one of the, one of the most perfect st- stories you've ever seen for just, shit, you know, uh, Cameron, when he did it, he went, I need my sex scene, done, thank you, need my violence scene, fabulous, need my suffering, need my wickedness, all that stuff. So what we're about to do is we're going to come up with a blankiest blank and blank, and we're going to come up with a desire, and we're going to check with our experts to see if it satisfies your needs in the story, and each one of you is going to decide. So... If we could have, please, we're going to have three volunteers for a blankiest blank and blank, and three volunteers for something they desire, and our panel of experts will choose which one most appeals to their particular brand of expertise. So, could I have a blankiest blank and blank, please? We actually only have, well, we have the creepiest uh, zombie in the graveyard. But I want two more. The holiest sock in the drawer. The what? The holiest sock the holiest in the sock drawer. The holiest sock in the drawer? Okay. It's <coughs> very yeah, dull stories. We'll it's supposed to be related, so. though. As long as something's not the loneliest geek in college? Oh, I like that one. The loneliest geek. Does, does that cover suffering? It's just okay. here. <laughs> and one more please. The, the Greek is suffering the loneliest geek. Yeah. The tallest girl in the school. The tallest these three possibilities. Now, we want to create a desire in them, something that they want to see if they can achieve it, that's going to change who they are, or change the world around them. And we want to know if that's an intriguing direction to go, and you will be the arbiters of this. So, we have the tallest girl in the school, someone other than you, what does she want out of this story? What desire does she discover she wants? She wants to be the average height. She's going to have to visit her one class church. <laughs> Take off a couple of feet. So, we're now going to ask you guys. The, the tallest girl in school wants to be of average height. Does that have sex in it? Nope. Yes, it does. Why does she want to be of average height? Oh, to
1: get... So she
0: can meet people and find love and stuff like that. So that's what I mean. It does satisfy the need for a sexual story because she wants to be the right, I would say the right way, but she wants to be shorter because she wants to be more acceptable. So, yeah. Violence. The tallest girl wants to be the right height. Is there, going to, is there violence in that? It could we, be. Pardon me? It could be. Can we come up with a way that violence could be there? She's being bullied. Uh, conflict against herself, conflict with others. Conflict with others, conflict against herself. But I like the part where somebody said she's been bullied. Did you say that? Yeah. Did you say that? That was her job. She's the violence expert. <laughs> but that's a good answer. She wants to be this height because... She's been bullied for being way too tall. All right, so suffering? Is the tallest person suffering a lot? Most likely. Most likely, because she's going to be picked on and bullied, all that other kind of stuff. Wickedness. Now, we need to have is there wickedness inherent in this story? You tell me. The tallest girl in the school wants to be a, a, a more acceptable height. Is there wickedness involved?
1: I'm not really seeing much in the way of wickedness.
0: I see some. The bullies are wicked. The people that are picking on her do it for their own pleasure at her displeasure. And that's that's fine with me. Novelty. Do we have novelty out of this story? It depends how she goes about getting to be the average height. Um, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to say you get novelty right out of the bat because I don't think I've ever heard of plastic surgeons making people shorter. I've just never come up except for the case of Paul Simon. But I've never I've never come across that ever I, I don't think there are plastic surgeons who just come in like well I'll measure your legs and put you out the other side I've heard plastic surgeons are making you taller I know about that yeah. but I've never heard it going the other way so that's that, that's fun for me and comedy do we have do we have the potential for comedy of somebody getting their legs sawed off so <laughs> there, um,
1: there would be some chances of comedy here it sounds like kind of a, a pretty good story for middle school kids sort of a coming of age tale It could be uh, it could involve a lot of uh, it, a lot of desperate attempts to become shorter could uh, lead to some pretty
0: wacky attempts. Yeah, I actually, I, I think there's a, a lot there. So right off the top, there is potential for this story, but I want to try two more just to see if we have potential. So we have the creepiest zombie in the uh, graveyard. What is the creepiest zombie one? Let's see how this works for our panel. What What is the creepiest zombie want? A date. Pardon me? A date. Creepy zombie wants a date? You guys can volunteer. That's perfectly okay. All right, well, the sex expert wants the creepy zombie to get laid, so automatically. <laughs> <laughs> That's a winning formula because that satisfies yours. Creepy zombies, violence, Does that work? Mm-hmm. Zombies, they want brains. Suffering. Somebody's
1: going to suffer in
0: some way. Suffering, suffering is beautiful. Zombies? Wickedness. I'm not sure that zombies are wicked because zombies aren't capable of making choices, right? So I need a little wickedness in there. Somehow can we juice this up to make the zombies story more wicked? Well, Normal, people a... you me? Normal people who don't want him to go on the date. Pardon me? Normal people who don't want them to go on the date. I would probably argue the girl herself doesn't want to go on the day. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Jealous zombie, now we have a little wickedness. And now the If you have a zombie who wants to find love, but his zombie wife <laughs> doesn't want him to, the story suddenly becomes more intriguing because we've added the element of wickedness. Novelty. Yes. Zombie wants to find love? i got to be brutally honest with you. I actually have seen that story before. Oh, huh? In fact, it's out in the movies right yeah. now. It's called oh, More Bodies. So it, it, it does slightly not pass the novelty test. And comedy.
1: Well, um, I can think of a way that could be uh, comedic. Um, say uh, somewhere in the story you got, uh, t- uh, he, you got a human who's trying to study zombies. It stumbles across the air, uh, de- their seemingly deranged alpha male, previous zombie in the graveyard. And uh, so, um, tries to uh, cut him from the herd and try to teach him how to behave like a human. Uh, that could uh, that could lead to some comedic situations.
0: That's not bad. My first thought for comedy is anybody who makes you love, where parts of their body fall off.
1: <laughs> 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 exactly. Like a uh, wipey, uh, like uh, what if you tried uh, putting a uh, sterling watch on his uh, on his wrist and uh, and buckled it so tight, snap.
0: Uh, see, I went immediately to. Excuse me, is this your schmeckle? That's what I went. On. <laughs> okay, I want to hear one more, please. One more idea, so we can see our panel experts. Our third one was. Can somebody remind me what our third idea was? The, the loneliest geek. Was, in- the lonely- the old- yeah. Okay, I think this was going to the- win. So, <laughs> the loneliest geek at Comic Con. Oh, I, I believe this is Toronto Comic Con. Comic Con is the one in San Diego. And I don't know where I got the idea. Where, where, where no one is. Know. <laughs> Well, uh, the loneliest comic geek can stand in San Diego, not in San Diego, and Toronto wants what? What is it that they desire that's going to move them into a place that's going to suggest sex violence, comedy, wickedness, suffering, and, and, and novelty? Oh, I have
1: to be taken seriously.
0: Okay, the, the, the loneliest geek wants to be taken seriously? Yep. Here's the reason I don't love that, is because being lonely and being taken seriously does not move me into a new territory. The lonely person sort of always wants that. That's what's normal. I want to find something that's new normal for this lonely person. To me, if, if I want to see the new normal that moves it in this, it is something else. The loneliest comic geek at, at Comic Con wants to be crowned uh, the king of the costume ball, so he wants to get the opposite of loneliness going, wants to get popularity. But that's my suggestion. I want you guys to do it, real quick. Just a suggestion of what the loneliest geek at Comic Con wants. And then we'll check with our panel of experts to see if it works.
1: Best
0: Beautiful. In fact, there's an episode of The Big Bang Theory based entirely on that, where Sheldon goes to Stan's house until the restraining order stops. Okay. okay, so the loneliest geeky Comic Con wants to become friends with Stan Lee. Oh, this friendship. For his friendship, yes, he's trying to form a pair bond, and you know, Stan has a lovely wife, so that's no, none of that stuff's happening. But he wants to form a he wants to become the Merton Riggs of comics with Stan Lee, and so yes, there's actually pair bonding that's going on, in this violence. Security. 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 Have you seen the security guards that surround Stanley? Holy crap! They can beat the crap out of you. Have you ever been to a convention where Stanley is? It's literally like, out of our way, scum, Stanley is coming. They really do that. What do we see for suffering? Like, well,
1: pretty much the character's already suffering by being
0: there. By being the loneliest character, that's pretty nice. Wickedness? Uh, I'm not sure, because I'm not sure if the bodyguards would constitute wickedness. The character that wants to be friends with Stan Lee does not give a crap if Stan Lee wants to be friends with him. <laughs> <laughs> if he's breaking in through the windows while Stanley oh, is... So breaking in through the windows. Well, right? the, the, that's the, I wanted you to add wickedness. Find a way to make it wicked. And that's this, all kinds of wicked. That's all kinds of wicked. If he's like, so, excuse it's me, Mr. Okay. Lee, I understand this is your private toilet time, but I need it on. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty wicked. Call some kind of comic. What do we have for novelty? I would say
1: everybody would want to be friends with Stanley, I I guess it depends on how he came about, it, that it would be different than other people. Right, but that's
0: what, as an expert, I want you to come up with a novelty element to the story, so you can add novelty to it to make people want to read it. He
1: met
0: him in the washroom.
1: Pardon
0: me? He met him in the washroom. He met him in a washroom? In the washroom. God, I almost hate to say this, but I've been in a washroom with Stanley, so it's a novel for me. Um, I actually
1: have, because they all stupid things like that. They, they, next like, to they both me. like the same snack
0: cakes. Pardon me? They both like the same snack <laughs>
1: cakes.
0: They both like the same snack cakes? novelty. What I'm looking for in novelty is the idea that it's something we've never seen before. Uh, I've actually seen there's a film called My Date with Drew, which is about a guy who obsesses with Drew Barrymore and wants to do the same kind of thing. So it has a slight novelty problem. And there was an actual episode of the Big Bang Theory, as I mentioned before, where Sheldon tries to become friends with Stanley. So it does slightly lack its novelty quality. And the last one, comedy?
1: I think i um, a story about a stalker. It usually does involve plenty of comedy. There's some uh, di- difficult attempts, uh, climbing in a window, as you said, like uh, hanging, uh, like uh, waiting outside a hotel room, uh, outside and inside the uh, window. That uh, that can be pretty funny. Have you
0: uh, ever seen Stanley pretend he created Spider-Man? That's funny.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, speaking, uh, speaking of which, actually, this uh, concept, the funniest, uh, geek to uh, Comic-Con, I, I actually have a I have uh, this guesting board. About a lonely geek at Comic Con who not only wants to be taken seriously but um, also happens to have an idea for a comic book series and wants it to be published.
0: That is unfortunately what every single person in the room <laughs> feels. So <laughs> that is not a novel. <laughs> I, that fails a novelty test. If, if you want to read a story about someone else who wants to write a story, we all know somebody who wants to write a story. So it's not a novel. A okay, so we have our three possibilities for the a novel and our panel of experts because they have to be satisfied by the desires that, that every reader has. You're going to vote on which one of these three that we like. So we have the uh, the the creepiest zombie in the uh, graveyard wants to meet a, a nice girl with warm brains. Which one do you guys vote for? That Does that pass your test? Mm-hmm. Only only no. I want you to vote so we can see who's the winner. Okay, so we got th- four for that one. What about uh, Stan Lee needs a new pal? The wickedness element. Do you like the wickedness for that? And uh, can somebody remind me what the third one was? Because my brain is. Right, me. It's oh, it's tallest girl in school wants to be made shorter. Does that pass all of your tests? I seem to recall that one passed the most tests. So thank you, experts. We can sit you down for a round of applause. Thank you very much. And we will... uh... So now that we have the idea of the sex, violence, suffering, and wickedness potential has been fulfilled by our idea of the tallest girl in class wants to meet a patient-blind private... lose a couple of inches off her leg. The next thing we have to create is the idea of whether or not she gets what she wants or not. That's a simply yes or no question. Just by an I or a nay. Do we love this girl enough to give her what she wants? No. Okay, so we're all bastards. All right. (laughs) That's fine. Characters who end in failure are some of my favorite stories. My favorite story ever written is Cyrano de Bergerac, and he fails like hell all through his entire story. And uh, who doesn't love the godfather dying at the end without ever finding his son? fault? So, get a joke. Okay, so what we do now is we have to create the idea that getting what they want or not getting what they want in a plot is boring by the time it's over. If a character wants love, whether they get it or not, is meaningless because that's a binary answer. Do they get it? Yes. Do they get it? No. No one's going to sit around at the end of a story and just find out if the character succeed. what you do in a plot is you trick the audience into loving your story by giving them what's called the unexpected gain or loss. At the end of the story, they have gained or lost something that was not part of their original plan. That's how the story ends up being interesting. That although Indiana Jones was on his way to save the treasure from the Nazis, he, he, he meets up with his ex-girlfriend and rekindles a romance, which is the unexpected gain at the end of uh, Indiana Jones. When you give a character an unexpected gain or loss, it has to be somehow meaningful to who they were at the beginning of the story. Unexpected that has something, everything to do with her tallness. And just off the top, the first thing that occurs to me is she never gets to lose her height, but her tallness gets her onto the basketball team. She becomes the scoringest point guard in the history of that high school and finds love to result anyway. That's how you create the unexpected Gator Loss. That was just me whipping one off the top of my head, but at least we now have an unexpected Gator Loss. Yes? Um, I
1: have a- What if uh, suddenly towards the end, uh, like uh, around the climax, there is actually a new boy in her school who's actually taller
0: than she is? Probably is the guy that loves her as a point guard. That that, that melts in perfectly with our basketball play here, but that's fine. And that's the unexpected day. In in fiction, you don't want to introduce a main character too late in the story. That character would be introduced very early. She would would hate him or love him, but we don't introduce... You don't introduce a character at the very end. That's called hitting the characters by lightning. In fiction, you don't hit characters by light, unless it's the flash. <laughs> 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 the flash, you're loud to hit the light like, because, you know, he's right. Okay, <laughs> so now that we have our main idea, the world, or the tallest girl in school wants to lose a little height so she can find love. We know that she's not going to, but she's going to find love anyway, so this is a very satisfying ending. The next thing we do as creators is we create what are called set pieces. And There's three set pieces that we need for every single graphic novel or story to work. And a set piece, as it is, as it sounds, is a piece, in, a scene in which the environment, the set, the location therein, plays as important a part of it as the characters and events do. If anyone here has ever seen North by Northwest by Alfred Hitchcock, arguably the greatest collection of set pieces ever made, has anyone here seen it? It's the film that ends with the secret agents fighting on the, on the face of Mount Rushmore for the for American secrets. What a great set piece. We're fighting to save America, and we're literally on Lincoln's face. You couldn't <laughs> and in fact, if you watch that film, all of the set pieces in North by Northwest include the part where the crop duster tries to kill him, and there's another scene where they're on a train. It is, in fact, almost the lyrics to America the Beautiful, the angry waves of the or from sea to shining sea, they end up on Mount Rushmore. The entire story is about spies protecting America, and they do it in the backdrop of Americana. It's a brilliant because they create these set pieces. So, we need to come up with at least one set piece that only the tallest girl in the school, in that environment, would make sense. So let's just quickly think of a place that only the tallest person could make sense of we'll a set piece out of it. The roof. Right, maybe? The roof. The roof. Why was the tall person important you can get up there. So, we need to create some kind of a set piece on the roof. So, what does the roof suggest to set is that piece? A set piece is that memorable scene from The Bill or the comic book where we are highly aware of the environment and it helps to serve our purpose. Think about, for instance, the beginning of Watchmen. The opening of Watchmen is introducing us to the character of Rorschach, who is a filthy, stinky, blood covered piece of scum. Where, is Rorschach? where does the Watchmen start? A blood-covered alleyway in the gutter. He couldn't improve on that for Rorschach. We're going to introduce um, Rorschach, and we start literally in the gutter with a blood-soaked happy face. Uh, uh, it, it, didn't
1: a Watchman actually... Trust me, everyone
0: watched him. I think I remember it opening with
1: the investigation. No, It
0: opens in the gutter, down on the ground. It says... Uh, woke up this morning, Rorschach's journal entry, somebody something me, Dead Dog in the Alleyway, uh, I saw it's terrific. It starts in the gutter as we go up. The investigation is page two. The very first scene, that set piece, starting in the gutter. Who else are we going to meet in the gutter filled with blood than Rorschach? And, has anybody here ever read the Batman The uh, Dark Knight Returns? No. Sure. Okay. In Batman The Dark Knight Returns, the way that character is introduced is in one of the best set pieces in the history of comics. There's a whole bunch of characters that are talking about how Gotham City is no longer safe because Batman's not around and all the teams of bad guys are robbing people and causing all these troubles. And Bruce Wayne's in the story for about 10 pages talking to Commissioner Gordon about what a lazy bastard he is because he's not Batman anymore. But at some point, we need Batman to come back. So we see this scene where a pair of cops are sitting in a police car arguing about the storm that's coming and one of them hears a thump on the roof of his car and we pull out and you see Batman standing on the roof of the police car as a lightning bolt appears behind him. That's a beautiful set piece, because whether or not you know it, Frank Miller is saying he's a force of nature above the law. It's beautiful when you see what he's doing. That's what set pieces are. They give you the environment as part of the story. So she's up on the roof. Let's make it matter that she's up on the roof. I like both answers, and to put it together. Your character wanted to be up on the roof and your character wanted to be up high? Like Quasimodo, her height makes her feel uncomfortable. She climbs on the roof, because it's the only place that she can be by herself. There's nobody else who reach the railing to climb up there. That drives her towards the sun, which is your idea, and it drives her up to the roof, which is, which is her idea. And in fact, I think the roof is where she spends a lot of her alone time, because this gives us this sense of this is a set piece, and the roof, in fact, is probably a lonely place, and maybe up on the roof, maybe, where she starts to play basketball. She's by herself, and she can finally learn this skill. Okay. What are we doing on the five minutes? How are we doing on time? It's 38 minutes. It's 38 minutes? Ho. Oh. Okay. Now, we have to create what is called karma for the character. That means when the character does something, they build up points in their fictional universe. That means they are either going to deserve or. great, great Travel to read fiction so it turns out shitty like real life. We just don't like that. Real life is filled with evil people prospering. Come to my street someday, you'll meet some of them. Evil people prospering happens all the time in real life and good people being hit by cars happens all the time too. So if you read fiction in which this character Struggle was good, he gave money to the poor, he's a wonderful person, he gets hit by a bus in the last day. If you're going to really angry at that story because the karma wasn't right. It not the to So we going to decide right now, really quickly, is our character deserving of good things or bad things? We've already established that she's going to find love at the end of the story. So now we have to determine whether it's a good love or a bad love. So really quickly, think of something this character can do to earn karma points, and then we'll find out whether she deserves the thing she gets. If she's now going to become a basketball player, does she win the big game or lose the big game? Does she fight to make her team cohesive, or is she just a total bitch and she doesn't care who wins answer is arbitrary, as all fiction is, but I just want an answer from something. Sure. Of course. Sure, so, so, so why? Sure, she deserves a good conversation. Say she helps uh, little kids get their cats out of and uh, kids. Out. Ah, in fact, her superpower, which is getting up on roof. Yeah. She, <laughs> she might be That'd irrespective be so and, and kind of peter or stationery. Just okay. stop her from being a good person. Okay, so while she's up on the roof learning basketball, she eventually comes across a couple of churches Sorry to interrupt you, we've got about 10 minutes left, is that okay? Yeah, well, we're, we're coming in on the last 10 No second. worries. So she, she, occasionally will, she will occasionally rescue cats and frisbees and boomerangs from the roof, and so that means, the thing we decided for her at the beginning of the story, that she was going to find love, this is a good love now, it's not some bastard... so we've now determined that the guy that she's going to love she's going to deserve it because she's going to earn her karma points on the way up there so that's the next part that we've covered on the next thing is this roadblocks as I said at the beginning of this idea that every time we put a problem in front of somebody it's to delay the ending of the story so their graphic novels are only nine pages long but road When you create a fence in fiction, if I, if I need to get to a place and there's a fence between me and the thing I need to get to in fiction, my arriving at that fence does not stop me. Because how can I deal with a fence? I can go over it, I can go around it, I can tunnel under it, I can cut through it, I can find the lock and pick it, I can get to the guard and bribe him, I can blow the fence up, I can go screw it, I don't need the fence, I can levitate over it, so many ways to solve the problem of a fence. The reason that fence exists is not to simply slow down the story, but to show off how the character makes solutions happen. Yeah.
1: Okay. So um, I I, can, I just uh, came up with a with a pretty interesting approach because I feel it's interesting. I say uh, a lot of uh, girls at your school cards and her. Are sure to beat them in an upcoming basketball tournament. This uh, tall girl who knows how it feels to be uh, looked down she, she would be looked did, down on. Only
0: for the second split. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> The roadblock is the thing that's directly getting in my way for the thing I want. And the thing she wants to achieve all well, through the story, we already decided she doesn't get it, the thing she wants to achieve is to find a plastic surgeon willing to shorten her legs. And that's the thing that we decided we What to trying to do. The roadblock for that, first thing first, is money. How do I get $20,000 to get a leg shorter out of my side? Or B, how do I even find one? Because they'd have to be you know, back out of the plastic surgeons to start sawing people's legs off. So the question becomes is that first roadblock, which is how do I get the money to solve my problem? Brings up the idea that how she solves it is there not to just delay the story, but to tell us who she is. She can solve it selfishly, or self, or you know, for instance, she can rob a bank. That's one way of making the money, and that's a selfish way. Or she can do it by making a bank sale. or she can charge people to save their bank. There's many ways to solve the problem. Uh, so there's many ways to solve the problem. How she chooses to do it. Is what is called, you know, defining the character. So every time you are writing a story, when you put a fence in front of your character, it is there for the very specific reason of revealing who they are through the choices they make to solve problems. Indiana Jones is constantly resourceful when he solves problems, except for the part where he rides on a submarine for six thousand miles. <laughs> And then figure out later how to solve it. You create the thing you want us to know about the character, and create a problem that that thing solves. So, say you want to prove the character's a coward, that's a lovely thing. Characters, a characters, a cowardly. So, what you do is you set up a fence that cowardice will solve, because there is always a fence that cowardice will solve. If I need somebody to discover something in a room here, all I gotta do is put something across the hall, terrifying, and they run right into the room in fear and find why you create problems that have specific solutions, Who create the solution before the problem. Because you're looking to tell us who the character is, and before we're looking at what the problem is. How much time you have you got? You've got two and a half, two and a half minutes. minutes. Can I wrap up the whole graphic novel in the last two and a half minutes? Okay. And the last thing is this. All fiction in Western fiction is based on either comedy or tragedy. Those are the two possibilities we have mass, that's right. And in general, people tend to think comedy means you're laughing and tragedy means that you're crying, and that's not the way it works at all. Tragedy stories are stories in which the story has come to an end and there's no possible sequel because the characters have failed, died, or completely changed what their world was so much they can't get it back. Comedy is anything with a sequel. Comedy means the story isn't over, we can continue this on. At the end of most comedies, you'll see that people get married. Most musicals end with a marriage because a marriage says the life is continuing, there's going to be happiness and babies or fighting and squalling or whatever, but it's going to continue on. And tragedy means we're done with this character, we're never going to see him again. He got fed to a wood chipper, there's no more to talk about this character. Unless your name is Ripley, usually your story back to <laughs> it. <laughs> Or Dr. Doom, I guess the same thing. So at the end of our story, we have to determine whether or not, like a James Bond film, because he always ends up in a dingy with a girl, that's comedy, or a tragedy, everybody has died, lost, I think. So we quickly want to decide, this? our story end with comedy or tragedy? I believe it ends in comedy because we gave her a love that she deserved to be happy with, and so it's going to end with a character walking off happy. A minute and it's a half. Um, Minute and a half, you did a good job. I got 30 seconds. And I'm just gonna wrap it up. So we have our graphic novelist about the tallest girl in school who just desires a plastic surgeon to make her smaller. She does not get that in the long run, but she does find love because she ends up becoming a basketball player. She deserves it because she's a good person, and in general, the roadblocks that we put in front of her are going to reveal who we are. This one of the roadblocks we gave her is how does she make money? And then she makes money through acts of charity. This is a complete plot. We did it in under an hour. The most fiction is based on this. Thank you.